If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And we are in what I presume to be the last message in our series, Homeless, a, a, a message in our series in 1 Peter. Um, and uh, we're at those closing verses, and the, the title of this message is Becoming a Faithful Family. Becoming a Faithful Family. Um, and... Uh, our text is, is uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, and I, I'll be honest with you, initially, there we go, I wasn't really sure how much could be gleaned from uh, this text that at first glance appears to be sort of a hodgepodge. Um, the, the more there seemed to be a great clarity of thought that is going on in the author's mind that, that is actually quite tied together, not only to within itself, but also to the larger letter. And so hopefully we'll be able to see that this morning as we look through the text. And we're going to begin by reading. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Um, <clears throat> By Silvanus, this is 1 Peter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, or on my account, or in my, my, my thinking, you know, in other words, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in, uh, are at in Babylon, who has likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read your word, open our hearts to hear the message that you have for us. Open our eyes to see it. Open our ears to understand. Lord, press these truths upon our hearts. And transform us in your grace. Help us, help, allow this message from these, this text to uh, secure some of the things throughout this letter that Peter's been saying into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Immigration is considered successful when the immigrant has integrated and can, is contributing socially and economically into the new community. According to an article on the website for NATO Association of Canada, one of the biggest obstacles to successful immigration is family separation. Why? They offer because families are vital in the development of an individual's social development and empowerment as well as self-sufficiency. Note the irony in that. Families are vital for self-sufficiency. <laughs> well, it's true because none of us are truly self-sufficient. Meanwhile, they suggest, most countries are making family reunification more difficult compounding the very problem they endeavor to cure. For instance, in 2016, Denmark introduced legislation that would increase the wait times for reunification from one year to three years, compounding the issue. Now, according to Anne Fadiman, in her chronicle of one Hmong immigrant family's story, um, the Hmong have been called our country's least successful refugees. 
least successful. If you look beneath the surface, however, you discover that that's based almost exclusively upon financial measures. If, however, one looks at social measures such as rates of crime, child abuse, illegitimacy, and divorce, the Hmong would probably score better than most refugee groups and also better than most Americans. But those are not the forms of success to which our culture assigns its highest priority, end quote. How have the Hmong achieved such a difference in some areas that often the church has difficulty in seeing a difference in? I mean, if we were to measure those things in the church, I'm not sure that all of them anyway would ring up much of a difference, at least broadly speaking. Well, they've maintained a tightly knit family structure. And even when extended family uh, uh, members, or, or, or rather those who have lost their extended family, have, have come into their community, they actually, in a sense, we might use the word adopt, they adopt them into a clan so that they're not just Hmong living in this community, but rather they are a part of this group, this family group, this clan. And that really is the key. When, when the government has tried at different times to move them to different places, they just rearrange so their family group is back together. <laughs> and, and, and that's been vital to their maintaining and, and developing this sort of, of social success, even if not monetary success. We, we have something to learn, I would argue, from the Hmong. Although Peter didn't even know who the Hmong were, and maybe most of us don't. They came out of Laos uh, to the United States, a people group that had fled China many, many centuries prior to there. Uh, and, and so, long story behind it. Uh, he didn't know who they were. I think he would agree that they have something to teach us. In our text, Peter highlights family solidarity as vital to each individual's faithfulness to God and one another. Faithfulness to God might be a way to summarize everything in this epistle, this letter that we call 1 Peter. Faithfulness can only be cultivated in an affectionate family atmosphere in which faithful obedience is highly valued. And we're going to explore our text under three headings today. First, family faithfulness. Second, family of foreigners. And third, family affection. You could possibly just define these three headings as the what, where, and how of becoming a uh, faithful family. So let's begin under that first heading, family faithfulness, or the what. What is it that we are to be as a family, as a people? Well, we're to be faithful, so family faithfulness. Look at, with me again at verse 12. By Sylvanus, otherwise known as Silas in Scripture, that's just the long form of his name, um, like, like us, they had proper names and shortened versions or nicknames as we call them. Uh, Silas is mentioned in other places in Scripture. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, or by my accounting, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Don't miss the family connection. As we will see today, there's family language all over these three verses. And it starts right there, a faithful brother. He's not just faithful, he is that, and that's important to our text, but he's a faithful brother. He's one of your siblings. Now before exhorting them at the end of that verse to stand firm, 
in the gospel, in the true grace of God, Peter highlights their older brother Silas's example. In Acts chapter 15, we're kind of first introduced to this guy, Silas. It's after the first church council in, in church history. Um, it was convened to make major decisions on how Jews and Gentiles were to relate to the gospel and to each other. Big decisions were made. <clears throat> they wrote out these decisions for the churches. And then we read this. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, there he is, leading men among the brothers. But in what way were they leading men among the brothers? Well, we find out in verse 26, a few verses down, that they were deemed faithful men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they were faithful when push came to shove to confess Jesus Christ at the risk of their lives. They stood firm. Silas stood firm. And so before Peter instructs these believers to stand firm, he holds up an example. Oh, by the way, I'm sending this letter by the way of Silas, who stood firm. He was faithful. See? And he's your brother. This is a family trait that is to be developed amongst us. Faithfulness is, in, in not so many words, the same thing as endurance, really. I mean, on a Venn diagram, they just as love, gentleness, and kindness overlap. It's not as if they're all nine distinct different things that we have there. They're, they're nine ways of describing what happens when the Spirit is at work in our life. Jesus Christ lived faithfulness perfectly. He became, as we read in, in Philippians 2.8, obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, he's called the faithful witness. Faithfulness, in other words, requires endurance in suffering. It's not tested and therefore proven until there's suffering involved. Faithfulness. Is there any doubt, given the content of Peter's letter, as we've seen it over the last many weeks, that his recipients, with whom he's identified himself as one of their elder brothers, that they are in need of endurance. They are in need of endurance. They will suffer. They will be opposed. They will have to subordinate themselves to people that are not kind, not gracious, not loving. They are going to need endurance. What faithfulness looks like in action may best be understood by what Peter wrote in chapter 4, verse 19 of this letter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls or their lives to the faithful Creator while doing good. Faithfulness is, in the face of suffering, I am entrusting my life to the Father and, 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 don't leave this out, I continue to do good. I don't cease obeying God. It might be the very thing that got me in trouble, but I continue to obey God. I continue to do good. I don't just stop and have a pity party. I entrust my life to God, and I continue to do good. That is the essence of faithfulness. And it's a family trait. 
it's the essence in that verse, chapter 419, entrusting our souls and continuing to do good, it's the essence of how we become faithful. In every situation in which we are tempted to cave in, give up, or do evil, we rather entrust ourselves to the one who is faithful, and even if it means suffering, we continue to do good. And that's why I say that faithfulness might be the one thing under which we could characterize everything Peter has instructed us to do and be in this epistle. And so it's no wonder that at the end of this epistle, that's the trait, that's the thing that he summarizes with. And he says, this is the true grace of God. He exhorts, and he is a true witness of this, or a witness of this true grace of God. Through this brief letter, as he puts it, Peter has been exhorting and bearing witness to a life of faithful endurance and suffering. And he wants these saints to know that this life of faithful endurance and suffering is that he is describing is not a counterfeit version of the gospel, but the true grace of God. Now, why might, why might anyone, why might they question such a thing? <laughs> well, because some things never change. Is it not an uncommon malady that when things aren't going the way we hope, we ask, what am I doing wrong? We must be doing something wrong, we reason. And surely there are times that would be the case. The Israelites were all for Moses being sent by God for their deliverance until they had to gather their own straw to make bricks. Leave us alone. They were really excited about leaving slavery in Egypt until they couldn't find water. I want to go back to Egypt. They seemed to question whether or not they had the true grace of God there in the wilderness. Don't we all, in some way, get tempted to question whether or not we have the true grace of God? I mean, even today... We are tempted to evaluate God being at work in our midst by whatever measure of success we have. Success. That's the thing that determines if God is at work, we think. Would not the true grace of God, we reason, bring success? It's carried over into church life also. If God's stamp of approval in the form of success, meaning usually growth and great and exciting things... If God's stamp of approval is missing, we assume He is not pleased with us or that something else is wrong. Peter might say, it's entirely possible that everything is right. The fact that you have to suffer and endure suffering, he would say to these believers, is the life that is the true grace of God. Times of suffering also make us susceptible to deceivers who would tell us, no, 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 that, that's not the true grace of God. No, listen to me, this is the true grace of God. So it opens us up potentially to deception. And no doubt these believers would have been uh, targets of such deception. I recently was sent by someone on Facebook Messenger a video that presented the gospel, none of it wasn't one of you, so don't wonder if it's the person sitting next to you. 
wasn't one of you. Um, but, but it was a video that presented the gospel in this sort of metaphor uh, as booking a flight on Salvation Airlines. So, so the, the whole background is of this plane and, and, and you know, you're making this trip on Salvation Airlines. Listed in the benefits of this airline is comfort assured. Now, the implication that immediately came to my mind was that they were saying that this will be a comfortable ride. No worries. Now, that is not the true grace of God, if that's what is meant in that statement. Now, if they meant, and I'm trying to be as generous as I can possibly be, if they meant that amid our sufferings we are assured that God will comfort us, then I can go with that. I just don't think that's what they meant, given the whole context of the genre of the, of the video. Because if that first one is what they meant, let me assure you that it is not assured. This is not a comfortable ride, so to speak. We need to be keenly aware of that. Because this is the true grace of God, what Peter has been describing, we must not allow ourselves to be disaffected or disillusioned. To be disaffected means to have our affections or our sympathy alienated to, to, to be disconnected, to be disloyal. In other words, we no longer want to be a part of that. We're no longer in love with the very thing that we set out to be in love with because it isn't what we thought it was. We thought it was comfort assured. <laughs> to be disaffected then leads to unfaithfulness or a lack of endurance. The Israelites were disaffected and disillusioned in the wilderness when they could not find water or had the proper amount of meat, and you could add to the list. Peter does not want suffering believers to go down that path. Faithfulness can only be cultivated in an affectionate family atmosphere. We must have faithfulness. It's a family trait, but it can only be cultivated in an affectionate family atmosphere. And Silas models this value for the rest of the siblings so that they might stand firm. So Peter holds him up as an example. We must stand firm because of where we are. Because where we are means that we face opposition. And we are somewhere in the realm of Babylon, either the, either the capital or its domain. Uh, let's look at uh, verse, the beginning of verse 13 under our heading, Family of Foreigners. And this again has to do with where. She who is at Babylon or in Babylon, more literally, who is likewise chosen. And I'm just going to pause there. We'll get back to it in a moment. But I want to focus on that, uh, that phrase at the beginning of that verse. First off, who or what is Babylon? She who is in Babylon. Babylon was the capital city of the Babylonian Empire. But it also names a power talked about throughout Scripture. Okay, so I want to explain that. It's important that we understand what he's doing here with this metaphor. It starts with Noah's grandson so to speak, Nimrod, who was a mighty warrior, a, a, a military might, so to speak, in that day, who established his kingdom in Babel along with three nearby cities in the land of Shinar. Now, if you're real familiar with Genesis, the land of Shinar may sound vaguely familiar. Well, that's because it is the setting for, in the next chapter, the story of the Tower of Babel. Okay, or 
Same word translated Babylon in Hebrew. It's one and the same word. Okay. It was associated with chaos and confusion because of the confusion of the languages. So basically, when they translated it into the Greek Old Testament and the Septuagint, they just translated it into a word for chaos and confusion. So, so a little different when, there. So, Fast forward to the New Testament. And Stephen, in Acts 7, now remember, Babylon was an actual empire and, and the actual capital of that empire. Okay, The Babylonian Empire, capital city, Babylon. But it represented much more than that all the way at the beginning of the Bible and all the way to its end. It's mentioned throughout Scripture. Um, so you get to the New Testament, and, and Stephen, who was eventually stoned here in Acts 7, in his sermon, he, he quoted a prophecy from Amos that said that, in, in, in Amos, it said that Israel would be taken away beyond Damascus, a reference to the Assyrian Empire um, at that time. The Babylonian Empire at the time of Amos wasn't even a threat, but it soon would be. But when Stephen quotes it, he simply replaces beyond Babylon with, I mean beyond Damascus with Babylon. Because Babylon had become synonymous with the empires of the world in opposition to God and his heavenly kingdom. It wasn't as if he made a mistake and forgot where it was that it would be taken. No, Stephen understood this concept of who Babylon is in a biblical storyline. And so he was referring to what they understood to be Babylon, the kingdoms of this world and all earthly power. Babylon is synonymous with the empires of the world in opposition to God and His heavenly kingdom. The empires of the world in opposition to God and His heavenly kingdom. Or as the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis try to say that fast ten times. As it's put there, Babylon is the type, you might say archetype, the type, the, the, the pattern of worldly power and rebellion against God, and the anti-type, the, the opposite of that picture of the heavenly Jerusalem. So Babylon and the new Jerusalem stand, if, if you will, in opposition one to the other. In the last analysis, they go on to say, history consists in the great struggle of worldly power against the rule of Christ. The kingdoms of this world are tied to Babylon, and they shall one day become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Amen? In the book of Revelation, Rome is referred to as Babylon. But ultimately, all earthly empires whose ways of bringing peace are in opposition to God's way of bringing peace through the cross are Babylon. So Babylon, in summary, is a ruling power that is antithetical to God and His purposes and is a source of disruption and chaos. Peter reminds these suffering believers that anywhere they are in this world, they are not at home. They are homeless. The Hmong understood that. They're one of the few groups of immigrants that did not come to the United States to seek a better life. They did not come here to seek a better life. They came here because they would die if they did not. They would be slaughtered if they did not. Many were slaughtered in the process of exiting. Had they had it their way, they would have been there and stayed there and lived. They understood that they were exiles. They weren't trying to meld into our 
economic system, they were wanting to be farmers just like they were there, but we offered them places in cities. They didn't know what to do there. <laughs> but they knew they had to stick together if they were going to find any sense of, of order in their lives. We are exiles. We have to remember that. Peter reminds these suffering believers that anywhere they are in the world, they are not at home. They are homeless. They are exiles in a foreign land. Faithfulness must be demonstrated where? In the context of opposition without forsaking the upside-down ways of God's kingdom. In other words, faithfulness must be demonstrated in Babylon or its extended empire with the ways of the kingdom of heaven. She who is in Babylon. Who is this she who is in Babylon? Many argue that she is the church. Ecclesia, which is a feminine noun. And I agree, at least theologically. I think theologically that's the right answer. It's the church. However, grammatically, the word church is not found in the letter. So it can't be the, you know, the antecedent to she, so, you know, specifically. If one were to look for an antecedent, you know, if, if we're talking and I say, Stephen's going to give the announcements today, and he is going, well, when I say he, you think, who's he? Well, you, you immediately know, you go back, that's the antecedent, Stephen. Okay? Of course, I'd have been wrong today because you know, Mike and Steph gave some announcements. So, but the point is, that's what, so if you look back, you, the first antecedent that's, that's feminine that could possibly be a match to she, we find in verse 9 where it says, resist him, this spiritual enemy, firm in your faith, or in faithfulness, you might say, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That word brotherhood, you might think, well, brotherhood, that's a masculine noun. No, it's actually a feminine noun because it's referring to the whole family of siblings. And, and so that would be the reference. So yes, it's the church, it's the brotherhood, it's the community of God's people that exists throughout the world. But it's a family term that is being used there quite specifically. She who is in Babylon. In verse 9, Peter points uh, the believers in his audience to their solidarity with believers around the world that are suffering. Here in verse 13, Peter is also expressing solidarity between the exiles in Asia Minor and those in Rome by referencing she who is in Babylon. Babylon does not set up, by saying she who is in Babylon, it's not setting up a, a, a con contrast with those exiles that are in Asia Minor as much as uh, it is setting up solidarity because they're, they're in this together. In other words, she who's in the capital city of the very empire that rules where you live, the only contrast might be that, it's, that Peter and this group that is sending their greetings are closer to the center of evil than you are out there in Asia Minor. But it's the same evil. In other words, we're all exiles, whether in the capital city or its surrounding empire. So it's a solidarity that is being expressed there. By calling Rome Babylon, Peter provides instruction, I would argue, for how we relate to earthly governments. And, and, and this is the so what portion. You know, if you want, why does this matter? Well, it matters a great deal. It, it, it matters a great deal. 
And it will require us, if we're going to understand it to whatever degree we can, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know that we'll ever get it fully grasped. It's something we have to wrestle with. But because of the very fact that it requires us to wrestle with paradox. Let me give you some examples of why I say paradox. When we think of earthly governments, let's think of Pharaoh and the Egyptian empire. They were a means of salvation through Joseph for the family of Israel. They would have starved to death but for Pharaoh and Egypt. Means of grace. And very soon they became a means of enslavement and murder. Paradox. How do we relate to Pharaoh and the Egyptian empire? When the Jews were exiled to Babylon, Jeremiah told them this. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Pray for their prosperity, he goes on to say. Pray for their prosperity. Well, that's pretty positive stuff, right? Indeed it is, and that's how they were to engage Babylon. But if we know the story, we know that Daniel's life, who, by the way, he was a great influence there, but his life was threatened at times. And through his faithfulness, he's able to influence things for the better under Nebuchadnezzar. But he would always be a foreigner. He would never, I mean, Daniel could never have become the king of Babylon. Impossible. He's a foreigner, an exile. And he always remembered that because if you look at his lifestyle, he lived accordingly. He wasn't trying to just completely meld into. He lived a distinction and yet had a positive influence. Babylon, the place where they were to go and prosper, was also a place of great evil against God's people. You might remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace and Daniel into a lion's den, fully aware that they might not be delivered. Now they were. We don't read the stories about the few that weren't, right? That they were thrown in, and, you know. We don't get those stories, but we know they exist. Under Persian rule, Babylon made laws allowing Jews to be killed for sport in the book of Esther. Esther was a force for good in the midst of that, but at the risk of her own life and, frankly, not unstained by evil. It's a fascinating story. Even Solomon's kingdom. I mean, we're gonna, hey, you want to have a great earthly empire? You go to Israel, right? And Solomon, the, the, the son of David. Yes. It was a mixed bag. He brought prosperity to Israel. And then he overtaxed them and enslaved his own people. To the point that when he passed away, everybody's like, thank God he's dead. Now can we get on to something better? It has a lot to do with why the, 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 two, the nation divided into two kingdoms. In chapter 2 of Peter's epistle, he, in, in verse 13, he instructs us to honor the king and submit to his authority. Honor the king, submit to his authority. But then here he refers to Rome metaphorically as Babylon, which has many negative connotations for his audience. And Romans 13, the most widely known text about how we relate to earthly governments, Paul instructs us to submit to and obey earthly governments because they are under God's sovereign direction. But seemingly, if you look at it in context, it's an example of how we overcome evil with good. Paradox. 
Can you see in all of these that we have to wrestle with paradox if we're going to understand how we relate to earthly governments? We seek their good. We pray for their prosperity. We labor for good. We plant. We multiply. We, we, we do everything we can to prosper, but we always recognize that our ways and means are different than their ways and means. And we are to be loyal first to the kingdom of heaven and the ways of the cross, the ways of self-sacrifice, the ways of King Jesus. Amen? Which is why some have offered that the most political word that we have is church. When you understand what it means to be an exile, that makes sense. Church. The family of God. Christians in different contexts often swing from one end to the other uh, on the pendulum of how we relate to governments, politics. Either they want to take over the world. You know, you've got a lot of Christians who are like, you know, reconstructionists. We're going to build the kingdom of God on earth through some sort of governmental. No. If you, if you look at those, they always turn out to be empires of evil. They, they have horrible track record. Okay? That's not what we're trying to do. That's, that's thinking that we can take over Babylon and become the rulers of Babylon. No. Forgetting that we are exiles. Reconstructionism. Theonomous. For all their good intent, it leads astray. Or we tend to separate ourselves and have zero involvement. I mean, we, we could use like really extreme examples, maybe the Amish. But we have other ways of doing that. And, and that can be our temptation. I mean, we may not go to these extremes, right? But we live in this middle, but our temptation is to go this way or that way. And sometimes just the nature of what's going on causes us to have to go this way or that way. You know, if, 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 if Nebuchadnezzar is saying, bow down to this idol, well, no, not going to do it. So, so we have to, to, to weigh those things. We have to live in that paradox. As exiles in earthly empires, we are not to try and make it a kingdom of heaven. We are called to be a family that is an outpost for heaven. Called churches or brother-sisterhoods, if you will, to borrow from that brotherhood language in verse 9. We are called to do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven, such that the kingdom of God comes in our midst and is modeled for the world. Or, adapting a quote from Cabin Rowe, we are to be a thriving family of believers that bear witness to the inbreaking reign of God in all that we do and are. We are to be a living picture of and testament to God's reign. That is at the heart of our mission, of who we are and what we are to be. And when we are that, we will have us and sisters all over the world that are enduring the same kinds of sufferings at different degrees. It might help us to remember we have brothers and sisters in China that are in prison for their faith. And it should remind us, because we are exiles, that, that our goal is not to turn this into some sort of earthly empire where we don't suffer persecution. As much as we might want that to be the goal. Living in Babylon, then we are to seek the good of the place of our exile, while always remaining foreigners and exiles in this place. And then finally note in that verse, or that phrase, who is likewise chosen. We are a chosen family. That she, this, this, this church gathered in Babylon, Rome, 
is also chosen. At the beginning of the letter, he said, to you elect exiles, you chosen exiles. So he begins and ends the letter referencing this chosenness, this election. Exiles at the beginning, Babylon at the end, it's all tied together, both chosen. Ask a Jew, you can be a secular Jew, a religious Jew, um, even a Christian Jew, you'd probably find the same answer. Ask a Jew about what it means to be chosen, and you'll discover that it means you will suffer. I'm, just a brief glance at human history would indicate that. It means the world may be against you. To be chosen is not a point of pride, but of purpose. We are chosen for something that is to bear witness to God's heavenly kingdom. That, and that is, that's what we're chosen to be, is those who bear witness to God's heavenly kingdom. Sometimes that requires us to suffer, that we can demonstrate that God's ways are not the ways of the world. We don't return evil for evil. We don't curse those who curse us. We bless instead. We don't rebel and reject. We honor. Our ways are not the ways of the world. We're chosen for that purpose. Faithfulness to God is a family character trait, one that is foreign to this world, can only be cultivated, one, in a place where we have opposition, but two, in, in a loving family atmosphere where it is highly valued. And that leads to our last um, point. By the way, the second point was intended to be our longest point, only because it's a little bit harder to wrestle with some of the ideas there. Slow it down a little. Explain it. But let's look again at verse 13 and then 14. She who is at Babylon, or in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Note another family term. Uh, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This week, um, I, I was reading a, an essay on pastoral theology and care. I got a new theological journal. I was excited to open it. And the first article an essay on pastoral theology and care in the lives of the Reformers, Martin Bucer and John Calvin. It did not paint them all glorious. It was honest, but it did highlight aspects of their pastoral care worthy of imitation. And when they got to that part where they applied it to our current day, they quoted Will Willimon lamenting a trend in pastoral care and counseling, and I thought it was insightful. Although, Willimon wrote, although much has been gained in the past century by urging pastors to attend carefully to the individual, we lost a sense of the church, the gathered congregation, the context, as the context of our care. In other words, we've, we've focused on pastoral counseling at the office, so to speak, one-to-one, and, and, or maybe at a coffee shop across the table, one-to-one. -one. And for all the good that's brought, his concern is that we may have lost something vital with it. That we have forsaken the Ephesians 4 model of pastors and teachers equipping a congregation for mutual care. Or as another author puts it in that article, we need to rediscover the congregation as a primary context and agent for the care of God's people. Paul certainly envisioned this in Colossians 3, verse 16, where he described the saints caring for each other 
with purpose, similar to how he described his own preaching ministry in chapter 1, verse 28. How would they do it? By letting the word of Christ that he had preached dwell in them richly, they would teach and admonish one another, which was what he was doing as he was speaking and preaching and proclaiming God's word, admonishing and teaching with all wisdom and instruction. In other words, Paul in his preaching, and presumably the pastors in Colossae, were equipping the saints to do that work of caring when they were gathered together. Peter knows these saints need not only a letter from Peter, but also an ongoing ministry of the family to each other. Peter intends for the greetings from the church in Babylon and from Mark, this is John Mark, the author of Mark, whom he calls his son. So first he brings up their older brother, Silas. Now Mark, his son in the faith, you know, I, Mark, note that Mark's not held up at this point as a, as a, a, a model of faithfulness, but as my son, still growing. This is the one that left the mission work with Paul and had to later be restored to that because he wasn't really committed to the task. Faithfulness would not have described Mark early on. It did later. So he's not held, he's no mention of that there, but my son, he, there's this affection nonetheless that's expressed regarding Mark. And he intends these greetings from all of the above to be encouraging to their faithfulness in Christ. And so what does he do? He tells them to greet one another. In other words, he wants them to be, continue to encourage one another as they greet one another that they might grow in their faithfulness. And how are they to greet one another? With a kiss of love. Real care is only, can only be effective, is only effective when it is affectionate. You can't provide care for the community when you don't really care about them. It's not just a matter of here's the doctrine, here's what you need to do, and okay, next week I'll see you at 1 o'clock. And, no. There's got to be integrated affection for those that are being cared for, whether it's in an office or in a group or in the community. There's got to be affection that, that is involved in that. We are not professionals, if you will. And what is this kiss of love? I mean, you know, let's all be honest, we kind of squirm when we start talking about that in our, in our midst at church. Paul calls it uh, a holy kiss four times, and Peter calls it a kiss of love. What did it signify? It, it's important to understand, I think, its significance in Roman culture at that time to really get what it's about. According to the Dictionary of New Testament Background, um, kissing at that time was a standard family greeting. Roman women kissed kinsmen. Children kissed parents. Fathers kissed their children, etc., etc. Peter and Paul, since both of them use this, uh, this greeting that they, they encourage others to do, they're teaching the church to engage one another as family members with the affection of family members. And, and here's what's interesting. It, this included the few rich in their midst, some churches more than others, and the poor. It included slaves and masters when they were in the church that were, if they were believers. And, and so it illustrates the subversive nature of the gospel 
to this world's power structure at that, that, that time, that world at their time's power structures. You can't practice this while maintaining lines of separation that are necessary to stay in power over other people. You just can't do it. Lines of separation are necessary. If a slave owner begins kissing the slave and vice versa because they're instructed to by the gospel, it isn't going to take too many generations, if even a generation, before that whole thing crumbles. It's, it's I mean, it's why, you know, there, nothing wrong. Well, maybe there is. I don't think there's anything wrong, generally speaking, with titles in the church. But I, I really don't want to be referred to by my title. Okay? I'm, you can, you know, Pastor Jerry, I don't take offense at it. Don't get me wrong. It's not a matter of offense. It doesn't bother me. In some sense, you might say I might like it. I don't know. But I don't like it. And here's why I don't like it. It's a line of separation. And if I have to rely on a line of separation to maintain some sort of authority, then it's the wrong kind of authority. I want family affection. You know, growing up, my kids never called me Pastor Jerry. I may shock you. I, to this day, don't think my daughter right there has ever called me Pastor Jerry. Certainly Micah wouldn't, my son-in-law. I mean, you know. <laughs> Might call me a few other things, I'm not sure. <laughs> Just kidding, by the way. Um, why? Because family, that's just not what you do in family. It's affection. It's too familiar. Note the root of that word. We need to be that familiar with each other. Anyway, none of that. Now, you know, I'm not advocating that we start kissing each other at church. Um, you know, this actually became a problem in not too many generations. And very, like, one generation or so later, maybe one and a half, uh, they, they had to limit that men and women could only kiss once, you know? I mean, you know, this, more than that was not allowed. Eventually, they just got rid of the men and women thing altogether. Men to men, women to women. That, you, there's nothing holy about it after a while. So, so let's be clear that it wasn't a perfect symbol. It's not one of our sacraments, okay? But, but, but it was, it did signify something important that it was communicating to them at the start of the church that they had to understand that we are doing something different than the culture around us is doing. We are a family. So the form is not what's important, but the expression of family affection for one another, that is important. This affection is what will be required if we're going to truly care for one another, lest we give our goods to the poor and have not love and are nothing but a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Well, it wouldn't take much effort to find examples of Christians who focused on theology to the exclusion of practice, doing the word, so to speak, or even those who focused on theology and practice but failed to have affection for those who were the recipients of their ministry. Peter knows that genuine care must be built on a foundation of love, the love of God that's been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 
And it looks like care, mutual care and affection. This may call us to change how we view our participation in our gatherings. Do you view it as a responsibility to care for one another? If so, do you engage a sermon, not just for your personal benefit, but also to be equipped to care for others? So one of the the so what questions you should be asking yourself is, how will this help me care for others? How can this be applied in my care for others? Do you prayerfully pursue, pursue God's heart for one another? Those you are least inclined to want to serve in particular, which is the difference between a family and a bunch of friends. See, a family, you know, you don't, you don't get to pick all your siblings. Some of you are thinking, it's a good thing I didn't, too. I, you know, <laughs> I think a couple of my kids might have been gone, at least one of them, if um, the rest of them had much to do with it when they were growing up. But... Um, mm. Two themes intertwine in our text today. Family and faithfulness. Sylvanus is a faithful brother. My son Mark, a kiss of love, all familial affection, signs of that. The takeaways in this passage are clear. Model faithfulness to one another. Greet one another. Show affection to one another. Those are the the imperatives, if you will, that would grow out of this text. Model faithfulness to one another. Greet one another. Show great affection to one another. All essential for mutual care. Think of our gatherings on Sunday morning, if you will. Uh, Maybe as well as in our community groups, like, like a gymnast going to a gym. You think, gosh, should I go to community group this week? Well, think like a gymnast going to a gym. Gymnasts go to the gym neither because they are great gymnasts nor because they are lousy gymnasts. That is, neither of those are the motivation for going to the gym. They go to become great gymnasts. And we gather in the church and in community groups not because we're a great family nor because we're lousy at family and have no clue. We gather in order to become a great family. Because it takes practice. To do family right, we first have to be with a family, adopted into a clan. We have to experience difficulties to work through together. We have to have presence with those who are not our chosen friends. We have to greet one another and model faithfulness to one another and be ever reminded and exhorted to stand in the true grace of God. We gather because faithfulness to God can only be cultivated in an affectionate family atmosphere in which faithful obedience is highly valued. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these words and we move to the family dinner table and celebrating the Lord's Supper, Lord, I ask that you would cement these words in our heart, that you would cement these instructions to model faithfulness to one another, to value it in our midst, to greet one another, to show great affection to one another. In Jesus' name.